0: Said, As the Lord your God lives, I do not have bread, only a handful of flour in a bin, and a little oil in a jar. And see, I am gathering a couple of sticks that I may go in and prepare it for myself and for my son, and we may eat it and die. And Elijah said to her, Do not fear. Go and do as you have said. But make a small cake for me first, and bring it to me, and afterward make some for yourself and your son. For thus says the Lord God of Israel, the bin of flour shall not be used up, nor shall the jar of oil run dry until the day the Lord sends rain on the earth. So she went away and did according to the word of Elijah, and she and he And her household ate for many days. The bin of flour was not used up, nor did the jar of oil run dry according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke by Elijah. Father, so many wonderful principles of faith found in this little section. God, today, as a church, we are pleading with you. We are asking you, God, to increase our faith father we believe god help us in our unbelief help us father to have the even the faith of a grain of a mustard seed father it's not the greatness of our faith it is the greatness of our god lord impress upon us today the importance of living by faith in a wicked and perverse generation. Lord, we ask that you would help us to do this in the power of Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. Um, Our context is the book of Kings, which is a time of great spiritual apostasy in the nation of Israel. Uh, uh, Just a complete following away from the worship of the one true God. Northern Israel had been divided from the southern kingdom right around, probably around 920, somewhere around there, 920 B.C. It was the son of Solomon that pushed the kingdom into apostasy. Uh, he was, um, uh, his name was um, Rehoboam and he led uh i'm sorry Jeroboam Rehoboam was um in the in the southern kingdom i i'm getting them confused they sound too much alike <laughs> but um rehoboam was solomon's son and and he didn't listen to the advice of the elders that counseled his dad um So you young people, um, respect the wisdom of your elders. It may not sound like the best advice, but they've been around, they've got some experience and they they, they know better. And uh, so Jeroboam took the northern kingdom and, and plunged them into apostasy almost immediately. He set up two places of worship, one in Dan and one in Bethel, to keep the northern kingdom from going down to Jerusalem to worship, and so he appointed his own set of priests, their own special spiritual holidays that would coincide with the religious holidays of Judah so that they wouldn't be worshiping the one true God, and it just continued to escalate until the time of Omri, and Omri took paganism and the worship of the goddesses of Canaan to a a new level like never before. And if that wasn't bad, his son then intermarried with a Phoenician king's daughter. The Phoenician king's name was Ethbaal, which means Baal lives. And Baal was a storm god, a fertility god, a god of anger, a god of drunkenness, a god of of just debauchery. And, And Jezebel went about to eradicate any remnant of God's people in the northern kingdom, And this is when Ahab uh, is addressed by Elijah. And so last week we talked about when, when as a nation, as a people, when we move away from God, we need people who are courageous, people who know God's Word, people who are intimate with God, people who are willing to trust God even in difficult situations. And even when things don't make a lot of sense... Ahab was instructed to go and hide by a brook, and he was instructed to be fed by an unclean bird, of all things. And I think God was preparing the heart of Elijah for a life of faith. He was preparing him for greater battles further on down the road, when he was going to have to face 450 prophets of Baal, 400 prophets of Ashtoreth, and proclaim that there is only one true living God. And that's the kind of people that we need in America today. We need people who will stand for the one true living God in the face of all opposition. And we need people of faith. One of my favorite biographies, if you're looking for a good biography to read, I want to recommend to you today a woman named Gladys Aylward. Many of you have probably never heard of that woman. Write it down in your notes and go and Google her and get a biography. It will, it will move you to, to be a person of faith. And she's sort of an unsung hero. And she's one of these little ladies that I think that Christ is going to call up first in the kingdom of heaven and say, I'm going to give her a reward first because she was willing to be last. She stood about four foot eleven, and she was born in 1904 in London. And in her mid-twenties, she went to a revival meeting, and in that revival meeting she gave her heart and her life to Jesus Christ, and it changed her dramatically. Her conversion was synonymous with her surrender to be a missionary. That's the way she understood the gospel, if any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up the cross and follow me. And she understood that at conversion, and she said, I will follow Jesus wherever He wants me to go. And so she began to pray, God, where do you want me to go? And God impressed upon her to go to China. So she found the Inland China Mission, whose headquarters was in London, and she applied to be a missionary with an interior mission work in China. She began to study. She was diligent. She did everything she could. And then the exams came. And she was a single woman, stood about four foot eleven, like I said, not strong, not 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 robust, meek, gentle, but very resolved in what God had called her to do. And when she came before the head of the mission and the other men who were in, um, interviewing, they gave her the sad news: "You are not qualified to be a missionary." And she said. It is God who has made me qualified. Because God has put this in my heart. It is God who has called me. And she walked out of the mission and she said to the head of the mission, she says, I'm going to China. And he says, well, I don't know how you're going to get there. I don't know how God's going to do that. He says, my, my advice is to you is, is, is to find a husband, get married, and raise children. And she said, well, that's not God's advice. And he says, well, let me at least give you a job. So she gave him a gave her a job working as a housemaid in this man's home, who was a supporter of the Inland China Mission as well. And she was diligent. I mean, she would she would work all of her hours and then she would find a second job and work in the evening. And right next to the shop, or right next to the house that she was cleaning, right down the street there was a little shop, and she caught her eyes, and it was a a a shop that or a a store that that would give you. Travel. It was like a travel agency, I guess, back then. And she went in and she says, how much does it cost to get to China? He says, it's 91 pounds. And she says, whoa, I've only got two pence to my name. And he says, well, there's a cheaper route. It's called the Interior Soviet Tibetan Railroad. It takes about three times as long. It's extremely dangerous because the Chinese and the Soviet Russia are in the middle of civil war and it looks like the Japanese imperial army is about ready to invade China you don't want to take that route and she says I'm going and he says okay pay me the 41 pounds and she says I've got two shillings and he says well come back he says she says no I'm making a down payment today and she gave the man his, the two shillings uh The house where she worked had an incredible library. And in this library, there's all these books on China, and she began one by one. She knew as a servant she wasn't allowed to read them. So she would stack all the books in the bookshelf, and she would dust them and make them all look perfect, but she would slide one out at a time. And she began, and she started to read this man's entire library. And one day, he began to look, and he found one book that was missing, and they scanned the entire house, and they found it under her pillow. They called her in and said, you're going to lose your job. The Inland China Mission sent you here. We thought you were a Christian woman. She says, oh, I am, and I apologize. I I didn't damage any of your books. What do you mean, any of my books? She says, I've read them all, but this last one. He says, what? He says, why didn't you just ask? He says, I know as a servant you would have denied me, and I just want to know about China. He says, why do you want to know about China? She says, I'm going there. He says, oh, you don't want to do that. You a single lady? A little tiny four foot eleven lady, he says, that's the last thing you want to do. And she says, I owe about five more shillings on my ticket. Please don't fire me. And he says, Here's your last few shillings. And she went and she purchased her ticket. This little lady found a woman named Mrs. Lawson who ran an inn among some of the roughest, gruffest Mongolians in the country. And they would take their mule trains and spend their night at this inn. And this little four foot eleven lady, didn't know, it's a word of Chinese, she grabbed the mules when they would come into town and she would just drag them over to her inn. And the men would just have to follow along. She began to serve these men and she learned the language fluently. They began to respect her. They loved the stories of Jesus that she would tell them. And these men would leave there and they would tell the story of Jesus everywhere. And they said, where are you hearing this? And they gave her a name called the Virtuous Woman. This lady went in and she stopped a prison riot. The guards were fearful to walk into this prison. There was mayhem, bloodshed. They'd gotten a hold of the weapons, and the guards were just saying, Let them massacre themselves. And they said, No, go call the Virtuous Woman. This little four foot eleven lady walked into the middle of this prison and she said, Stop, hand me your weapons. And they laid them all down at her feet. He says, who is this lady? She began to dialogue with him. She's told him about Jesus. It changed the entire prison. Revival <laughs> broke out. She went and told the prison master, this is what you need to do. You need to find jobs for these men. You need to give them income. You need to give them a purpose. You need to give them a motive. And you need to let me come and tell them Bible stories. They found about her. The Chinese government says, we've got to stop this binding of the feet of these Chinese women. Who are we going to get to do this? All oh, we know this little four foot eleven virtuous woman. She went from house to house and she would stand up to the master of the house and say, Stop binding the feet of these little women, these little girls. The head of this, this whole area in Manchuria where she was at eventually converted to Christianity. The Japanese invaded, dropped bombs everywhere, children were displaced, and she began to take them into the inn. By 1939, she had over 150 children that she was caring for every single day. She got a note from another Christian missionary. He was a Catholic man, and the Catholic wrote her a short note and said, Surrender to the Japanese. And she wrote a little scribble on a note, and she says, Christians never surrender. And she led almost 200, Hundred children across the Chinese countryside into Tibet and the last thing that she had to do, she had to cross this river and she says, I don't know what we're going to do children, she was so depleted of, uh, of strength, her health was failing, she was had a fever that was raging, uh, a typhus and she sat by that river and knelt in prayer along with all those children and said, God you parted the river, you parted the Red Sea get us across at the end of their prayer she said let's begin to worship Jesus and the children began to sing praises to their God and the captain on the other side of the hill he didn't even know those children were here he heard these wonderful voices he thought angels had come down he travels over and he finds these children these orphans and this little tiny lady and she says we need to cross this river he says I know where a boat is found And every one of those kids was ferried across the river. Her health was so bad when she got across the river, she had to go back to London to to, to convalesce. And the message got back to the head of the mission about what had happened. He says, I have got to meet this woman. i got to find out who this is. He walks into the room, and there's Gladys Aylward, the woman he told, you are not qualified be a missionary. It is God who qualifies us. And the quality that God is looking for is faith. And that's what God told Elijah. God told Elijah, I have got a woman that I have prepared for her to feed you because this is a woman of faith. She believes in the God of Israel. It made no sense to Elijah. But I think God had been preparing Elijah for the next step in his life. And God does this in our lives. Where you're at right now, God is preparing you for something greater. God sent Elijah to live by a brook to be fed by a raven. There was no way in Elijah's mind that he's going to go to Zarephath and to be fed by a Gentile woman unless God had first prepared him to take food from an unclean bird. And if God was in this, I can have the faith to trust God for the next step in my life. And God is working in your life right now, the circumstances that you're facing, to prepare you for the next step of faith that He wants you to walk out into. I remember my wife and I, I was a pastor of a little church in Rome, Georgia. And I was faced with a decision, do I stay at this church, or do I trust God for my next step in ministry? I came into the church on one Sunday, and I resigned as the pastor, but I said to the people, I told to the congregation, I'm only resigning a building. I'm a shepherd. I'm a pastor. I don't resign people. And I will be in my home next Sunday morning. Next Sunday morning, Tracy and I had about 30 college students sitting on our living room floor. We called our band of misfits Berea Bible Fellowship. Berea, because the Bereans were more noble and they searched the scriptures daily to see if those things were so. These college kids had no income. They had no livelihood. They had no way of supporting a pastor. And yet every month, they took up an offering and provided for my wife and I for 10 years. And then the brook dried up. All these kids began to graduate. They all began to leave. They all began to take jobs. And Tracy and I said, what is our next step? And we were reading the life of Abraham. And Abraham was told to go. Go to a land that I will show you. Abraham didn't know where he was going. All he knew was God was leading him to make the next step. So Tracy and I found a mission headquarters and. Lawrenceville, Georgia, and we told them what we had been doing for the last 10 years. I'll never forget what Paul Sager, the head of the mission at that time, said to us. He said, God has given you the best preparation for the mission field, because that's what you're going to need to do in Ireland. You're going to have to open up your home. You're going to have to start Bible studies. You're going to have to train young people to teach the Bible to others, and you're going to have to walk by faith. God did not waste those 10 years in Rome, Georgia, where we met in a little house up on a hill, having home church week after week after week. And God did not waste a moment when Elijah was sitting by that brook. Every morning and every evening when he watched those ravens bring in the food, And God said, okay, the brook is dried up. I'm going to push you out of this comfort zone, and I'm going to take you one step further in your walk with me. And God will do that in your life, and God is doing that in your lives. I believe that with all my heart. And it's trials in our lives that help us listen to God. And again, forgive me for using a personal illustration, but when I was in that church... And I was given a mandate to only use one translation. I was given a mandate that I could not use praise music. It had to come from the hymn book. I was given a mandate that ladies in the church were not allowed through the door if they had a pair of pants on. Well, ladies, we'd have to dismiss the whole church today. (laughs) And men could only have a haircut like Sean's. It had to be white walls around the ears. And these kind of glasses weren't allowed because they were what the Beatles wore. I'm serious. I opened up my Bible. God speaks to you when you are going through trials. I opened up my Bible. I was 29 years old, and I said, where do I go, God? They didn't teach me this in seminary. I didn't have a class on this. Where do I go? God teaches you to listen to His voice when you're in trials. I opened up 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus, Tracy and I, and we laid, literally, we laid on the kitchen floor reading those letters, begging for God to hear His voice, and I came across a verse, and it described our church, rules, rituals, regulations, no love, no grace, And it said, from such people, withdraw yourself. Whoa. God spoke so clearly. It was not an audible voice. But God was telling me, withdraw yourself. It was the next Sunday. The very next morning, I walked into the church and gave him my resignation. But God can talk like that to us all the time, You don't have to wait until you're in a trial. We have a God who speaks. We have a God who talks. We have a God who wants us to have an intimate relationship with Him because the living Word became flesh. He dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, the glory of the only begotten of the Father full of grace and full of truth. No man has seen God at any time, but the only begotten who's in the bosom of the Father, He has declared Him to us. God no longer speaks through prophets, through visions, through donkeys, although He uses me. (laughs) But in these last days, God has spoken to us by His Son, whom He's appointed heir of all things, who is the fullness of His glory, who is the express image of His person, when He had by Himself purged our sins he sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high that's how God speaks to you and I today he has given us a living word that's active that's sharper than a double edged sword it's a piercing of our hearts and the intentions of our hearts and our motives God speaks to us today and we don't have to wait for times of trials but God does speak oh in a powerful way During those times of trials, God uses the weak and foolish. You couldn't found a more weak and foolish idea than to go to Zarephath. Ahab is trying to kill me. Jezebel hates my guts. She's got a death warrant on my life, and you're telling me to go to Phoenicia where Ethbal, her dad, lives? That doesn't make any sense. And why a widow? And why a Gentile? And why a woman who's starving to death and who's got a child, and they're going to eat their last meal and die? This is what our God delights in doing. Our God delights in taking weak things to confound the mighty. Look at us today. Look at our calling. There's not many noble in here. There's not many wise. There's not many rich. But God has chosen the weak things, the things that are despised, the things that are not to bring down the things that are. That is our God. That's the way God works. And this is God working here in the life of Elijah. If we're to hear from God, God needs to give us a stark realization that we need him every hour. If we're to hear from God, we need to change our attitudes, and not just during times of trials, but we need to humble ourselves before God. You're probably going to hear a lot of quotes from Jim Cymbala in the next month or so. (laughs) But just one short quote from him this morning. God is attracted to weakness. 1 Peter probably says it more powerfully, God resists the proud, but He gives grace unto the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, that He may exalt you in due time. Times of trials help us to listen and to focus on God's Word. How do we follow God? By faith. We follow God by faith one step at a time. It's that simple. God's guiding and God's providing can be experienced when you go. Let's read the text together. Then the word of the Lord came to him saying arise and go to Zarephath which belongs to Sidon see I have commanded a widow there to provide for you exact same words in Hebrew same Greek or same words in English as well for the raven verse 10 so he arose and he went to Zarephath and when he came to the gate of the city indeed a widow was gathering sticks God's guidance and providence are only experienced when we go on faith, one step at a time. You remember the story of Abraham. Go to a mountain that I will show you, you and your son. Abraham didn't know where the mountain was. He didn't know if he was going to come back with his son. All he knew was, I'm going to take a knife. I'm going to take the wood, and I've got the fire. And his son says, look, Dad, I see the wood, I see the knife, and I see the fire, but where's the sacrifice? Abraham would have missed the ram caught in the thicket if he hadn't taken one step at a time and had prepared for every step of obedience that God intended for him to do. And the same thing is true in our lives. We will miss those incredible experiences of faith, if we don't step out one step at a time. We don't have to know the big picture. We don't have to know all of the answers. All God wants us to do is trust Him enough to take that first initial move. Elijah was like Israel in the wilderness. At the commandment of the Lord, they rested in their tents. And at the commandment of the Lord, they journeyed. So often, God leads His people out by a way that they know not. And the reluctant to follow the divine leading are overcome by the utter perplexity of their circumstances into which they sometimes are brought. When He reached the city, then He met the widow. There she was. Now he has to take the next step. So what does he do? I think, I think Elijah's putting out a fleece here. He says, okay, God, I've gotten this far. I've met this little widow woman. Is this the right one? So what does he do? He says, will you bring me some water? And she says, oh, okay. He says, all right, this is looking pretty good, God. It's almost like when Abraham sent his servant out to find a bride for Rebekah. I mean, find, find Rebekah the bride for his son Isaac. I'll get it straight. So he, he looks for some confirmation. And he says, bring me a little bit of food. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not into your own understanding. In all of your ways acknowledge Him and He will direct your steps. That was true for Elijah, it was true for Abraham, and it is true for you and I, isn't it? If we will acknowledge Him, if we will put Him first in all of our ways, not trusting our own understanding, our own wisdom, God will direct our steps. And so her answer is, as the Lord your God lives. I don't have anything to eat. And when she said that phrase, as your God lives, Elijah knew that this was the woman. This is a woman of faith who knows the one true God of Israel, and this is the woman that you've commanded me to be fed by, Lord. God gave the confirmation when he stepped out in faith. We should never underestimate what God can do, don't underestimate the power. We limit the God of Israel. Can our God prepare a table in the wilderness? Oh, yes, He can. He can blow in quail three feet high if He wants to. Our God can rain manna if He wishes. Our God can do whatever He sovereignly chooses to do. Don't underestimate Him. A Gentile, a widow, living in poverty? She's starving. She's trying to provide for her son. You sent me into the territory of my enemies? Ahab's father-in-law was Ethbal. We limit God because of what we cannot see. We ought to walk by faith and not by sight. Jesus uses this story, this historical story. This is a real history. This isn't some kind of fable that the Jews made up. Jesus confirms this story in Luke chapter 14, not chapter 4. In chapter 4, Jesus begins His earthly ministry, He walks into the synagogue, He unrolls the scroll of Isaiah, and He's looking for a verse that He wants to read, and it says, "...the Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because He has sent me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to the brokenhearted. He has sent me to recover sight to the blind. He has sent me to set captives free." He has sent me to give deliverance in Israel. He sat down and he closed the book and they didn't like his words. They says, you're just nothing but a carpenter. What are you doing reading this? And he says, a prophet is not without honor except in his own country. Elijah had to go to Zarephath, of all places, to find a woman of faith. And then Jesus says this. You're going to say to me one day, doctor, heal yourself. What you've done in Capernaum, do it here also. No prophet is without honor except in his own country. He says there were a lot of widows in the days of Elijah, but God didn't send Elijah to any of them except for a widow of Zarephath. And this is what he was telling his generation. Jesus was telling his generation, you've got so much right before you but you are unwilling to walk by faith. I am looking for a people who will walk by faith and trust me. They were so angry, they were ready to throw him off a hill that the city was built on. They got the point. Faith stretches us. Could you imagine how faith was going to stretch this woman? I've got nothing. I've got a little bowl of meal. I've got a little bowl of oil, and that's it. I don't have meal for tomorrow. I, in fact, I don't even have a meal for three of us. And you're saying, you want me to fix a meal for you first? I fix it for you, and there's nothing for me and my kid. Faith is That's what faith does. It takes us out of our comfort zone and says, okay, God, I've got enough for right now. Have you ever looked at your budget, and you saw it to yourself, God, I don't have enough to tithe. I don't have enough to give to my church this month. God, I've got this, 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 and this. And God will speak to your heart. He spoke to my heart a lot of times. And he's saying, you know what? You don't have enough to keep to yourself. You need to trust me. You need to believe If You will give. God will give unto you, pressed down, shaken together, running over, and filling you up. Now, I'm not preaching a message on giving this morning because we, you know, whatever. I'm just telling you that's that's the way God works, though. He stretches you. You may be thinking, I, I can't speak in front of people. I can't do this. I can't do that. And God will say, you trust me, and you watch what I can do. I can imagine when Judy went down to Wall Avenue, she probably thought, I am the last person that should be reaching out to drug addicts, alcoholics, homeless rough-ins. And yet, that's exactly where God has placed her. And God wants to do that in every one of our lives. Trust Him when we can't see it, when it doesn't make any sense. She only had enough for her son. She didn't have enough for three. By faith, Moses, when he came to years, he refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He's got all the wealth, all the education that any Egyptian could have ever wanted. He says, I'm walking away from this. I don't know what's going to happen. But I'm esteeming the reproaches of Christ, greater riches than what Egypt can offer me. By faith, Abra- or Moses fled the face of Pharaoh, not fearing him. Why? He endured because he was able to see the one who's invisible. That's what faith does. That's how faith stretches you. You begin to see the invisible God's hand in your life. God is faithful to His Word. Without works, faith is dead. That's that's believing faith. Genuine believing faith is stretched and it does what God asks you to do. This woman who provided for Elijah, she's got a wonderful promise, and she didn't even know about this promise in the New Testament. It says, whoever receives a prophet, Jesus said, in the name of a prophet receives a prophet's reward. Whoever gives a cup of water in the name of a disciple will receive the reward of the disciple. She didn't have that promise. She didn't know that, but you and I do. Lastly, faith is rewarded. Faith is increased when we experience God firsthand. Have you ever prayed for something and God answers? Or sometimes you don't even pray for it and God provides it anyway? What does that do to your faith? It just reminds you of how close and how intimate and how much God knows you're very hard. Faith is strengthened. Faith is rewarded. When we experience God, what did this woman experience? Verse 14 and 15, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, The bin of flour will not be used up, the jar of oil will never run dry, until the day the Lord rains, sends, earth, sends rain on the earth. So she went away and did according to the word of Elijah She and her household ate many days. I I can imagine by about day 10, this woman's faith was as strong as the rock of Gibraltar. I know God's got something for me. I I know it's going to be there. I, I remember one time Tracy and I, we were getting ready to leave one university and God had put it on our hearts that we didn't need to study at this university, we needed to transfer and go to Temple Baptist Theological Divinity School in Chattanooga, Tennessee, wasn't accredited, didn't have the professors at the school that I was at, and I went to the mailbox, opened up, and there was a check from my grandmother for $3,000, the little note said, this is for your last year's education, I didn't need that where the school I was at, but if I was going to transfer, I was going to need every penny of that. I'm not kidding you. The next day, I went to the mailbox. I'm opening up. Okay, God, what you got in here for me today? No, I didn't say that. But you know what? God had another check for $3,000. It was a check from the state of Alaska. We had left Alaska. We had a son born in Virginia, but we put him on our our our, our um, dividend check that the state of Alaska sends out because of the uh, oil royalties. They had, I had been, we hadn't been in Alaska for three years, and they finally got our paperwork done, and God sent it that day. We put our trailer up for sale. We bought it for $3,000. We put it up for sale, and we asked for $4,000. <laughs> it was a dump. <laughs> so We thought the lady would talk us down to $3,000. We said, okay, we'll at least get what we paid for it. But my wife had done a lot of great, nice work on the house. I remember she had decoupaged the, the cabinets, and she made handmade these beautiful drapes. And the lady sat down on our couch, and she was looking at the drapes, admiring them. She says, you know what? If you leave these drapes, I will, send, I will give you a check for $4,000. She sat down on our couch, and in one week's time, those kind of experiences increase your faith. That woman was growing in faith every single day, saying, God, you did it again. God, I'm just going to expect you, God, you're, you're always there. You're always on time. You are faithful, and that's the kind of God we serve. And when you walk by faith, you begin to experience the rewards of a faithful God who is true to his word. This isn't presumption. She had a word from God. And you and I have a more sure word of prophecy than what that lady ever had. Faith is not a tool that we can use to manipulate God. This woman had no name-it-and-claim-it theology, did she? She simply believed God's word, and she lived one day at a time. There was no prophecy that, lady, you're going to have a big old mansion if you take care of me. You're going to have a nice chariot if you take care of me, and you're never going to get sick. And by the way, your son's never going to get sick. In fact, next Sunday, we're going to find out that her son got sick and died. So this wasn't some kind of prosperity theology that she was putting her faith in. It wasn't some way of manipulating God or prompting God to be a genie in the sky. That's not what faith is. Faith is taking God at His word and trusting Him no matter what the circumstances that I find myself and saying like the Apostle Paul said, I have learned in whatever state I am to be there with content for I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. That's biblical faith. It's the faith that's able to stand in the front of the Sanhedrin and say, I ought to obey God rather than man. It's the faith after you're beaten for your faith to go back and rejoice and ask God to give you greater boldness to keep preaching His word. That's biblical faith. And I'm tired of people saying that faith is a work. Faith is not a work. It's just the opposite of work. It's trusting God to do everything. In fact, just because I've got faith doesn't mean I deserve for God to do anything. When the prodigal came back home, he had faith in his father, but his father didn't owe him a penny. His father could have said, you're right, son, you don't deserve any of these things. Be one of my slaves. It is God's character because God is good. Because our God loves, is because our God is gracious. And without faith, it is impossible to please Him because he that comes to God must believe that God exists and that our God is a rewarder of those who diligently seek Him. It is of faith so that it might be by grace. We enter into God's grace, not because we deserve it, but by faith we trust in the very nature and character of God. What are some things that we can take away this morning? Nothing grieves God more than unbelief. That's why people are separated from God. It's simple as that, because of unbelief. And that's what grieves our God. Our God has done so much. As Caleb was praying, he talked about the snow. We see the seasons. We see our goodness of our God. We see Him provide day in and day out sunshine and rain and harvest and season after season. We've got enough faith. We have enough evidence to believe God through creation, we're told. We have enough evidence to believe God through conscience. We have enough evidence to believe God through our own personal experience of morality and truth and goodness and virtue. And what grieves God more than anything is simple unbelief. Nothing hinders a Christian from growing more than unbelief. The darkest times of our lives can also be the times of the richest blessings, can't they? That's something we can take away today. When we trade what we can see for what is unseen, that is when we see God most clearly. Let me say that again. When we trade what we can see for what is unseen. That's exactly what this woman did. She could see the meal that she had for that day, And she traded it in for what she couldn't see tomorrow. And that's what God wants us to do. He wants us to take what we can see physically and say, God, I'm going to trust you with this for what I cannot see. God delights in showing his strength through those who are humble. And genuine faith calls for action. And that kind of faith is richly rewarded. Let's close with prayer. Father, we thank you, God, for these Old Testament truths that we can apply them to our lives today. And God, not only do you need a group of people in America right now that are courageous, God, you're calling North Valley Bible Church to be A people of faith that calls out on God with expectant hearts. Call upon me in the day of trouble, and I will answer thee, and thou shalt glorify me. God, raise up this church to be men and women of faith. We ask this in faith today, knowing, God, that you are going to do this in our church this year. In Jesus' name.